HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. I'm your host, Eli Sussman, and this is The Line on Heritage Radio Network. At first, 2020 was the year of the restaurant pivot. Unfortunately, we're now at a stage where 2020 is the year of the restaurant closing. But I offer you that 2020 has been the year of constant reinvention. Chefs are accustomed to retooling the menu on the fly because of an undelivered item or an inaccurately prepped bit of mise en place. But night after night, week after week since the start of the pandemic, chefs, owners, and staff have reorganized seats, tables, menus, and service styles in an attempt to stay open and stay alive to see another week of operation. This year has layered unnatural levels of complexity and financial burden onto a business model already hampered by both. And in this episode of The Line, I speak with two owners that have opened, operated, and constantly retooled, all while operating in the thick of it in Manhattan throughout this pandemic. I was able to chat with co-owner Patricia Howard and her partner and executive chef, Ed Sherminski, about the various versions of their restaurant project called Dame. It has existed as a fish and chips pop-up and has also hosted multiple other chefs during what they called their Sunday series. Patricia and Ed donated nearly $20,000 in profit, yes, $20,000 in profit, to NAACP, Harlem Grow, Hot Bread Kitchen, and Soul Fire Farm this summer from their various cooking efforts. They are currently opened as Dame Deli and Bottle Shop, serving Ed's seafood conservas, condiments and soups, along with some of their favorite wines, fresh produce, and prepared goods for many of their friends who dropped in for pop-ups this summer. On this special episode, we talk about trying to open and stay open during COVID, how a small team and a lack of funding can help you be nimble and scrappy, what it means to have a strong partnership, and if COVID changed any of their ideas about opening and operating a restaurant. Now, on to the episode. Patricia and Ed, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with me. Uh, I want to start by asking how things are going with your business right now. So we are in the midst of what some people are calling the second surge in New York City. There's been some more restrictions on businesses. And if I'm not mistaken, you have taken sort of a pause in between your uh, your pop-ups and in between what might be the newest incarnation of Dame. So if you could uh, first let me know where you are right now, and then uh, how are things going for you right now in, uh, in November? We're currently sitting in 85 McDougal Street, which is the site of our pop-up since June. Um, and we had plans to open it as private dining for the winter. Um, we closed down the summer series because it was getting cold out. We didn't want to invest in heaters and build a fancy structure at this point. Um, so we thought maybe we could do one party a night, you know, six to ten people, our friends. They could rent it out and Ed would cook uh, three to four five course meal for them. Um, 
But in early November, when we were trying to get that going, it seemed like the worst time to bring people inside of our space with the rising COVID cases. So we thought indoor dining was going to be shut down soon, and we nixed that plan. Um, Our current iteration is to become a, we're calling it Dame Deli and Bottle Shop for the winter. So we're getting it set up right now. We'll open up soft launch tomorrow and uh, a more official launch next week, but just selling produce, wines, bread, all our favorite things um, that we plan to get through the winter with and we want to share with the neighborhood. It just seemed like the safest bet for um, just regarding COVID cases and uh, giving us something to do while we do our build out, but doesn't take as much effort and energy as running a service every night. One of the reasons that I wanted to speak with both of you is because it's been so interesting to follow all the versions of Dame that have occurred since you uh, took over the space. You've been incredibly nimble in in a way that's been really representative of the times. A lot of people, they figure out what their concept is. It takes them a long time to develop it and they open up with that concept. Maybe COVID has uh, has changed people's perspectives on that somewhat, but can you talk about what originally the the conceptualization of, of Dame was going to be and what it became and then post COVID, has it has it changed your ideas at all about what Dame will become? Yeah, so this is it's quite interesting, and it's been through a lot of iterations, more more than you know the public's even seen. Um, so we put together. I'll go through this quite quickly because there's quite a lot. We put together the idea for Dame last summer, so summer of 2019, and it was originally going to be a wood-fired grill English restaurant in Manhattan. Um, 25 uh, max capacity indoors, sort of pretty refined cooking, all hearth style, like hearth is in, you know, a big fire pit, not the restaurant, um, where everyone sits around a counter and they just watch, you know, the chefs cooking and they eat. So like Momofuku Ko kind of without the, you know, probably not as quite as ambitious as that, um, but wood-fired grill. Um, and then we started looking at spaces and raising money for this and realized very quickly that opening a wood-fired grill in Manhattan is not possible unless you have multi-million, you know, way more money than we would ever be able to raise. And that's why you only sort of see it with the the huge restaurants um, or the very powerful ones. So that idea got shelved. And then we we sort of thought about what we could do because we started raising money and had a hard time of it at the, you know, this was pre-COVID. This was last, you know, fall. Um, a lot of investors who, you know, were regulars at restaurants we cooked at and worked at were just sort of, well, I don't know, like restaurants are risky business. Like they were very right. Um, and so we had a hard time raising money until sort of, uh, the new year. And we thought the only way we can really impress people is to get in front of them and show them what we're doing. And the best way to do that is to host a pop-up. Um, and so we looked for spaces that were small enough that we could, uh, cook in, with just, I mean, just me cooking and just Patricia serving, so two members of staff. So it has to be a very small space, otherwise it, you know, feels cavernous. Um, and we opened that at the very start of March and got six days of service in before the shutdown. And that's when we started feeling pretty bummed out about the whole thing because we, by that point, spent nine months working on raising money and getting our names out there, and no one had really heard of us, and we hadn't raised any money. And it, you know, we were basically in the same place we were a year ago. Add on to that, now there's a global pandemic and it, it felt pretty grim. Um, and we spent, as everyone did in March and April, eight weeks just staying at home as we were told to do and cooking at home. Um, and the, you know, as May started approaching and it seemed like there might be some sort of something to do that summer or the summer just passed with outdoor dining, we looked into things like food trucks and um, you know, any sort of like food carts, even very affordable ways of cooking and just getting our name out there. And then it seemed like the idea of opening a permanent restaurant was years in the future. Um, and we found the space at 85 McDougal that we're in at the moment, um, because we've been speaking to the, the owner of the space here and she let us use it as a pop-up space, um, so that we could do, you know, 
what basically is a food truck thing, fish and chips. And it just, that was, that was the idea. It was going to be one dish, just fish and chips. And it was a world away from the wood-fired grill restaurant with Michelin ambitions that we had originally planned on opening. But the fish and chips took off. People liked it. So we added more food and more people came. And then we added more drinks and more people came for that too. And it sort of turned into more of a restaurant than we were planning on it being. And then one day, a friend of mine who was also sort of looking to get his restaurant project off the ground, but hadn't been able to because of COVID, he was looking for a place to cook. And I said, well, why don't you come here and cook one day? This was maybe June, early June. And then his his event, he, he did Sunday's name's Alex Pinheiro, and he's opening his restaurant in Jersey um, later this year called Bodegon. Um, and it was a huge success, a sort of big sellout, people queuing down the block to take their food to go and eat in the park, that kind of thing. Um, so like, well, why don't we do one next Sunday? And then basically every Sunday just kept getting bigger and bigger and we kept inviting people back. And I think after like the second or third week, we decided, well, now we just got to do something every Sunday because this is, this is great. It's also a day off for us. We don't have to work. Perfect. And then, so that sort of ethos of collaboration carried Dane through to October and you know, this is sort of, we haven't really announced anything yet, but we're in the process of taking over a space um, very nearby to have a build out the permanent restaurant. And because we've, you know, been able to show some sort of success this summer in a very hard time to operate a restaurant, we were able to convince a few investors to, you know, put their confidence or put their faith in us. And, you know, maybe what we've been trying to do last year, we, we were able to do this sort of summer and fall just in spite of the circumstances. Um, uh, to answer your question about how Dane's changed, like now we're a seafood restaurant. That was not the plan originally, but it was such a success this summer that it seems silly to deviate. How did you look at the beginning for investors? And, and the reason partly that I'm asking is because I think in 2021, there's going to be a lot of people that are, were working at other restaurants that are going to make the decision to pull the trigger on doing their own projects. And it's really interesting to hear about the successes and failures of fundraising and how at the beginning you were not able to, but now it seems like you were able to turn the corner and actually acquire uh, some investors. So can one of you speak a little bit about the uh, the beginning when it wasn't uh, successful and now when you've been able to convince people to give you some money? Um. Yes, in the beginning, we it was over a year ago, so summer 2019, we started putting pen to paper and, you know, committed to making this a reality. So we started with a business plan and did everything from Google like how to write a business plan to talking to other people we knew that had, you know, started businesses and restaurants, um, just picked everyone's brains that we could and put together a like 20 page document. Um, I happen to have a degree in writing from Columbia and Ed has an economics degree from the London School of Economics. So, okay, not not a bad uh, power yeah. couple to put yeah. a business plan together. Yeah, we we had the math and the words covered. Um, so, but it did take a long time and a lot of days of like meeting after work in coffee shops and whenever we were both off. Um, and that laid out like our dream restaurant that we had in our head. Um, but when it comes to convincing other people to give you money to make that a reality, that's where we saw some of the problems. Like a lot of people wanted us to have a space first and, you know, like, okay, you have a rent number in your budget, but what if you can't find a space with that rent or, um, yes, you want the West village clientele, but what if you get a restaurant in Bushwick, like, there's a lot of odds and ends that people weren't com comfortable signing away their money until we had locked down. Um, and we had investor dinners booked at our first pop-up that got canceled because of COVID. So we got really excited that we had, you know, a group of 10 people from the Hamptons coming to eat at our restaurant, but that was scheduled for March 16th or 17th or something. So that got canceled. Um, and there was a lot of like pitching everyone we knew that had money, everyone we knew who had opened a restaurant or 
um, so we sent a lot of people our business plan and got a lot of like, wow, this is really awesome. We can tell you've spent a lot of time on this. Um, keep me posted. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah. It's it's always v- extremely tough to crack that first person, right. and then it does make it easier to go to the second person and say, "Well, we do have someone on board." Yeah. Uh, but true. finding that first person ha- is always extremely challenging. So you face kind of this uh, demoralizing moment in March that people that already had restaurants were kind of they were worrying about, oh, well, we might be closed for two weeks, a month, but you were really right at the cusp of trying to get everything organized. So when March happened, was there a discussion between you two about potentially putting the project on pause and going to find other jobs in the meantime? Or did you think that it was going to be a a fairly short uh, hiccup in the process and you would still continue pursuing the upscale, uh, Michelin, uh, driven, uh, Dame concept. I, I think it's, it's a question of alternatives. Like I, th- if we could have put the project on hold to go take hundred thousand dollar a year head chef job somewhere else and ride it out for a year, that, that would have been ideal. But you know, I think it was quite clear to, you know, any astute observer by the middle of March that the, the next, basically until a vaccine was issued, it was going to be a very bad time to be working in restaurants. And so we could either go and try and scrounge out some line cook jobs or server jobs or focus on making, pivoting this project to something that maybe we weren't necessarily enthusiastic about. Because I, I you know, I've said this publicly before, it's it's not my dream to cook fish and chips. <laughs> um, when we do them, we do them well, but it's, it's, you know, you don't spend 10 years of your life training to put things in a deep fryer. But... It was either that or, you know, be faced with a very tough jobs market. And I think a lot of news outlets have done a good job of covering the difficulties that face cooks and chefs, you know, in a environment where there's very little government aid for the cooks or for the businesses. And, you know, everyone's looking out for for themselves and it's the people at the bottom who get, get screwed. And that, I mean, that's also partly why we wanted to pivot to this, because what if we had a chance to, you know, employ some people who wouldn't otherwise have jobs by doing, you know, uh, fast casual, if that's what you would call the fish and chips kind of concept, which is what ended up happening. Um, so, I mean, and that's, that's something we're proud of. Um, did, did you have to invest, uh, money to get the fish and chips concept off the ground? Were there, uh, was there equipment or, or marketing expenses that you incurred in order to get that going? Or was it very DIY in the sense of, okay, we're going to buy product and, you know, a week from now we're going to start selling fish and chips and see how it goes. We are extremely DIY and, you know, people call it like bootstrapping. I think, that's one of the reasons we've been so successful and we're able to do that because we're a two to three person team. Like we're very nimble and um, can kind of play it by ear how, so yes, we didn't have to invest much money. We had to buy two electric deep fryers on websterant.com. We bought, you know, the paper boats that you serve. We served the fish and chips in, um, and then we printed some foam board signs that we attached to the windows of our little shop and take those down every night. So that was like a hundred bucks from a graphic like screen printing place in the basement of my building in my apartment building. Um, we bought like AstroTurf from Home Depot to make a little outdoor seating. We had a guy on Facebook marketplace build us planters that the city required you have, um, we went to the dollar store and got paper or like uh, fake flowers. So we did everything as cheap as we could because um, we had no investors for this this current iteration. Yeah, I will say that's like I think uh, if we have one contribution to make to the New York Culinary Canon about how to do pop ups, I mean, a bunch of people do pop ups, but I think the thing I said this to another uh, people who held a Sunday series at Dame and they have since gone on to open their first restaurant. I think taking some of this advice is like this is it, like find a space that has a liquor license so you can sell booze because you can't make enough money just selling food and find it that has some sort of infrastructure already in place, like preferably it has gas or you just buy cheap electric equipment and put it in and focus on one or two things that you do really, really well and just make them really delicious and then invite all your friends and 
you know, Florence Fabricant's email is public information. And so the eat to people's emails, like we just, <laughs> right. just email them, like don't pay $500,000 for a fancy PR company. And, you know, you make it look nice. It doesn't have to be nice. Um, <laughs> the food has to be phenomenal. Perfect. Like you can't get away with shitty food or shitty service, but you really can get away with like putting up a paper phone board because it's, a friend of ours said this to us and like, it's, it's very true. Like you, this is all just a, a set design. Like we're building a restaurant as a set and it does, it, it comes down eventually. And if you're only hosting a six month pop-up, like find it cheap. And that's why we didn't have to spend a lot of money because some people do these pop-ups and spend $10,000 on getting it up and running. And that's really, I mean, we couldn't even afford to be in a $10,000 hole. Like that's, that wasn't even a conversation starter. Um, and, and truly, at the end of the day, it really is about the food. You can have as much window dressing as you want, but if you make really good tacos or fish and chips, people will come and they will line up and they'll be satisfied at paying a lower price point than if you needed to cover your $900,000 build out or whatever it might be. Uh, and so... It's it's exciting probably for people to have been involved with the pop-up and seen, uh, and I mean this as a positive thing, what you did with so little. You know, it seems like you really uh, decided to spend as little amount of money as possible and just get it open. I'm curious, Ed, though, from just a chef and culinary standpoint, you said that it was not your dream to cook fish and chips and that you had uh, uh, Michelin aspirations when the original business plan was being put together. Have you been able to find uh, certain levels of culinary satisfaction with the current incarnation of, of Dame or are you kind of just still biding your time and, and planning dishes for what you consider to be like the true version that will open one day? Definitely a bit of both. Like the, I mean, I, I have come to love the fish and chips and we apply quite a lot of technique to it that makes it probably more complicated than it need be in the kitchen, but it just translates to something super delicious for the, for the customer. So, I mean, there's some chefing it up back <laughs> behind the closed doors, but that was also part of what was so exciting about the initial success Dame had this summer was that people came for the fish and chips and then they, they came back the next week and saying, ah, oh, the fish and chips and what else do you have? So then we started playing around with other dishes this kind of thing that would be on the Dame, you know, real Dame's menu, but putting them in paper boats and not doing table service and still charging, you know, way less than you would get in a, yeah, pay in a, a you know, a tablecloth restaurant. Um, that's been kind of fun to mess around with because we can do scallop crudo for 10 bucks or 12 bucks instead of the $22 it would cost when, you know, you have to pay all the overheads and the huge staff kind of thing. So, you know, it's, I mean, I think any, any decent cook or chef will find a way to with, you know, whatever they're working with, they'll find a way to make it enjoyable for themselves. And that's sort of how we, that's how we did it. One of the great things about doing a pop-up is that, uh, the folks that are doing the pop-up are, are so passionate about it. They do a lot of the marketing and social media heavy lifting. If you just have a restaurant, and you say, this weekend we're doing barbecue, and next weekend we're doing uh, Vietnamese spring rolls. It's not really as exciting as someone else coming in and doing barbecue, and also they kind of, uh, they're, they're so excited about bringing their own followers and friends in that you get a new uh, clientele every single week. How are you able to consolidate those fans weekly and get them to return did you try to capture people's emails while they were sitting did you ask them to follow you on on instagram like how did you turn a follower of a different restaurant or a different pop-up into followers of your concept and convert them into someone who would return next week we earned a lot of repeat customers just by showing them a good time and by having, you know, every Sunday was like a community event. People in the industry knew they could come on Sundays to Dame and see people they knew and have rotating like fun cocktails and a whole new menu every Sunday. And it kind of grew into its own thing. Like it wasn't just Yellow Rose's pop-up, it was Yellow Rose at Dame. And people did like special menu items just at their Dame pop-up. They had you know, um, I, it became more than just 
the pop-ups they were doing elsewhere. It was a whole part of like, we had the charity aspect. Um, yeah, I don't um, think we were specifically looking to take mm-hmm. their audience base, which um, sort of helped. I think we just, as P said, we we're just putting on a fun show, really, a day and every Sunday. And they're like, oh, well, this was fun. Let's, you know, if people enjoy themselves, they come back, right? It doesn't, this was the summer of no rules, too. So, totally. You know, if, if it, people enjoyed the arepas, they would come next week for the brisket or in the middle of the week for the fish and chips. And it helps run a busy street in the West Village. And, you know, a lot of people just walk past Dame and say, oh, there it is. Like, this is the place I've heard about. Let's go. Now where there are people standing outside right now looking for fish and chips. Was the idea that, Ed, you would be in the kitchen and Patricia, you would be operations and or front of house? Or uh, is it everyone doing a little bit of everything? Uh, I assume right now everyone's doing a little bit of everything. But um, when you were planning the sort of more traditional brick and mortar restaurant dine-in experience, was that the uh, delineation of, of labor or or is it a different way? That that's true. Ed is definitely the chef. Uh, I try to avoid the kitchen. Um, but then this summer we really exploded on McDougal street and became more of a bar than we thought we would be. And the service aspect became a lot more demanding. Um, like on a Saturday night after the kitchen had kind of closed, Ed would come up and help me bartend or help, you know, take orders. Uh, There were a few months there where we were just slammed um, at night. So that was really helpful. And we, Ed does a lot of the wine. We collaborate on cocktails. Um, I think most everything besides the kitchen is a collaboration. Um, And even that, no, even that is too. Like there's, it, this the partnership we have works so well because we you know really trust and value each other's feedback and opinion on things so that it enables us to i'm sure i'm sure you've been part of restaurants where just you know everyone's arguing all the time and the chef's yelling and the people in the office are cowering in fear and it's just a you know it's just an unhealthy <laughs> catastrophic work environment um and we just, you know, we've, we've seen that before and try and have the opposite of, of that kind of attitude. So there, there's no sort of firm line in the sand. But that being said, we do each have our areas of expertise and people do not want me to be touching all the tables and serving them. I guarantee my <laughs> the accent rubs off with the, some brusqueness. I am wondering, I know that people are often very cagey about finances and the financials, but if you would, if you would speak a little bit to, has this been successful? Is this just like we're scraping by and we are just waiting until there's a vaccine or have you actually been able to use this time to raise any money that is then going to go into your projects and, and I hope helping you live to a certain extent during this, uh, this COVID lockdown. Well, we took the, so I, I didn't say this earlier, actually, we opened the restaurant in the middle of the, the social justice protests and, and the sort of start of the, right in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. Um, and we were out protesting every day, as I think, you know, a lot of people were. And it seemed very irresponsible then to like open a brand new restaurant because we had all these people, you know, all these restaurateurs are struggling to get by and, you know, everyone's focused on social justice. So what business do we have opening a restaurant? However, we thought because we have this skill set, we know how to cook, we know how to serve and pour wine and make cocktails, we could use it as a way of making money um, and donating that money to you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and various organizations affiliated with it. And so that's what we did. We pledged at the start of the summer that for the pop-up, we were going to donate all of our profits to charity, um, which start sort of got a laugh from people because they're like, oh, really? All of it? Um, and then, you know, they sort of realized we were a tiny restaurant and that wasn't going to be that much. Or so they thought. Um, so once you've, you know, so that that gives us a very clear idea of how much money we made because every week we sort of counted what we spent and how much we made. We paid ourselves, you know, an industry standard salary. We paid our employee and then the rest we donated. And it over the four months that we were operating, it was $20,000, uh, a little over $20,000. And then there's some 
uh, that's set aside for the non-tax deductible stuff. So our total profit on revenue of roughly $200,000 was $25,000, which is just over a 10% profit margin. It's not, you know, amazing, but it's not terrible. That's that I think most people consider that a successful restaurant. I would respectfully disagree with you and say that that is amazing that uh, that during COVID you made a any profit and B that you decided to give any of it or all of it away. I think it's incredibly admirable and I think it showcases a uh, maybe an exciting, not a full shift, but uh, a p- potential shift of people being interested in Uh, business as part of community and what you spoke to earlier, which is that people coming into the restaurant and having really great camaraderie, it doesn't have to be about throwing plates and white tablecloths and just making money. It can be about many, many more things than that. Um, I I think that that's something to be really proud of. And I think that you guys should, uh, you know, brag about that. (laughs) And it's, it's, I mean, it's great because these organizations have then used the money to you know, help people's lives. In a, it, you're right. It's the restaurant communities should extend beyond the four walls of the restaurant, or I guess now it's the four walls and the street too. We're going to take a quick break for some commercial messages. Stick with us. My name is Sarah Kim and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Wisconsin cheese has proven time and time again to be a delicious expression of craft, hard work, and tradition. As a Cheeselandian, I am able to share a Gouda experience with fellow cheese and food lovers nationwide, as well as connect with cheese producers and cheesemongers, taking my love of cheese to another level. I invite you to join Cheeselandia because during these difficult times, it has been even more important to take it easy and get cheesy. The Cheeselandia community and events have been the glue helping to keep us together and connected. And I would love it if you would join me. And let's face it, if you hear the word cheese and get a little hungry, then you've found a place you can call home. To find out more about Cheeselandia, go to cheeselandia.com. This episode is supported by Nourish and Flourish. Nourish and Flourish features behind-the-scenes stories about artisans, producers, farmers, growers, and other makers in America along with delicious and wholesome recipes. The latest issue of Nourish and Flourish is a special artisanal gift guide showcasing some of America's finest products, including everything from the farm and garden to eco-friendly home goods, kitchen and cooking essentials, bath and body, original art, blown glass, seasonal recipes, and so much more. Shop online to support local and buy local. Together, we can make a difference. Learn more at nourishandflourish.site. Welcome back to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. On today's episode, owner Patricia Howard and partner Chef Ed Chermineski join me for a chat about their ever-evolving restaurant, pop-up, deli, and bottle shop called Dame. We're going to pick up the conversation with Ed talking about the start of his cooking career back in England. (laughs) <laughs> that's definitely the hardest I've ever worked. Like try, opening or running a restaurant is nothing compared to doing, you know, working in a high end restaurant and going to LSE at the same time. Um, yeah, that sounds that sounds like that total really, madness. That really sucks. <laughs> <laughs> what in the world uh, made you decide to try to have a full time culinary job, which is so mentally and physically demanding, and also trying to get a degree at LSE? So I was the like weird kid who at 11 years old was like, I'm, I've decided that I want to be an investment banker. Like who decides that at 11? Um, but I did. Um, so I did all the stuff that you do to achieve that goal. Like you get high grades and you get in study mathematics and economics and go to a good university. And so I sort of, by the time I was 19, been doing eight years of this, like dedicating myself to working in, in the world of finance. And, and I, then I did an internship in the world of finance. I was like, God, this sucks. <laughs> um, at the same time, simultaneously, I just started um, cooking in, at a restaurant called Pick You, which I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about after this because it's it has informed what we do at Dame a lot, even though it was ten years ago now. Um, I was looking for something, you know. I had always liked food. I've been into it for, you know, my, I had a mother who was a I have a mother who's a um, 
was a chef earlier in life and I was raised around a family that valued good food. Um, although, you know, it, that and being English are sort of oxymorons, but um, it, it was true in my case. And I didn't really consider what the uh, what working in a restaurant would be like. Like it wasn't a career that I grew up in a relatively wealthy suburb. Being a chef was not something one did with their life. Like that was it wasn't like frowned upon. It just wasn't known. Um, the only images of chefs I saw was like Gordon Ramsay yelling on TV kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. But I knew I liked eating at restaurants. And when it got from being like French restaurants on holiday in, in France or like like mediocre suburban restaurants to when I lived in London, because I was, you know, London School of Economics is right in the center of town. It's uh, on Aldwych. Um, so I was living in a dorm that was, you know, the property value of the building is in the tens of millions. Um, the dorms are pretty, pretty shitty, but um, it's in a great location. And I was eating at all these great restaurants and I saw these people behind the door and I was like, huh, I wonder what that's like. And as a college kid, you know, yes, you work a lot, but you also have, you know, weekends free largely it's like what if i went there and just got a job and just saw what it was like this was at the same time that i was doing you know the degree and then the internship and i was disillusioned with the internship um and i thought i'm not sure if i can really do this the rest of my life so i went into the kitchen one day of a restaurant i worked at or a restaurant i liked eating at sorry um and asked if i could um have a job in fact they posted it on twitter this was back when twitter was a you know usable platform um and so I went in one day and they sort of just looked at me and laughed. I was like this 19 year old kid with a preppy haircut studying economics. I'm like, what the hell are you going to do in a basement kitchen? Um, but I, I, you know, I'm pretty resilient. So I, they said, okay, you can come We're not, we're not going to pay you, but you can stand there and watch. Um, and I did. And I just like the first day I fell in love with it and I've never, you know, I've never seen so much. I think a lot of chefs have this story too, but there's so much energy and, um, attention to detail, like at the same time as so much like violence. I, I don't mean that in like a physical violent way. I mean like the you know the heat and the fire and the you know the meat on the cutting board and the you know meringue whirring in the blender. Like there's just so much uh, you know sensory overload going on. But at the same time, it's you know there's so much teamwork too. And that was just the polar opposite of the asset management floor I was on. So I, I you know was mesmerized by this this kitchen. Um, and it was very small. It was three people in the kitchen at one time and 25 seat dining room. It was not fine dining. It was very similar to what, what Dame is now. It was a, a restaurant that focused on uh, barbecue food, which in England in 2011 was not a thing that anyone did. That was like a, a new, it was kind of like fish and chips in New York. No one made American barbecue food in England. Um, and they had a little smoker downstairs and this wood fired grill in the basement, which you could just so never do that in New York. It was so great. Um, and the chefs who were working there were not, you know, it was not pit masters. It was all 25, 26 year old people who had come from fine dining backgrounds and wanted to cook something a little more casual. And they applied the ethos that they'd learned in those places as every Tom, Dick and Harry who opens a restaurant in New York these days says, I take the, you know, techniques I learned to Noma or 11 Madison Park, wherever they trained and applied it to um, you know, my little bistro, um, and 99% of the time that's bullshit. Honestly, the most, most chefs who run little bistros serve pretty crappy food. Um, there are, there are of course some uh, like very notable exceptions, but the average restaurant in New York does not serve, you know, particularly high quality of food, but this place in London really did this. Sorry. The same is true in London as well. Um, this restaurant really did pick you served amazing food, um, in a very laid back environment. And the staff was what, you know, the staff was the most inspiring part, inspiring part, because they were all so focused and so dedicated in a way that in the world of finance, they were just were not. People were there to, you know, show up and get their, you know, bonus and paycheck and all that stuff. So I just kept coming back until they started paying me. Um, and that took six months or so. Um, but because I was at you know, in England, there's a lot more support for college students than there is in the US. You get loans from the government that are, um, cover your cost of living. So I didn't need um, a salary at the time, which was very fortunate. And my accommodation was paid for by the university. So I could afford to do that. And I just did. And I just loved it. And the second they offered to pay me, I was like, all right, great. I'm going to drop out of college. And then I got on the phone with my dad, who's an economist. And he said, you are absolutely not dropping out of college. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fine. So then I did both at the same time. Um, but 
but once I'd been caught by the cooking bug, it was, I mean, it was very quick and it was, you know, head over heels romance kind of thing. And I've never looked back. Like, so I, you did finish school. I did. Yeah. And how long after you finished school did you decide that you were not going to pursue a a banking career or any type of economics related career and that you would go into cooking full time? After my first day in the kitchen. Honestly, like that's truthfully not exaggerating. I I never even you know, I went went back to finish the internship, which was three months long maybe, but I didn't pursue a job there at all. I was within the by the end of my first year of college, I decided I had no interest in anything other than cooking. And I'm quite lucky that I, I still feel that way because I guess a lot of people make boneheaded decisions in their teens and go on to regret them. I'm, you know. Well, you had a degree in economics to fall back on, so it's not like... Uh, I guess, I guess <laughs> you, that's why I mean. <laughs> I feel like you would have been potentially employable. How long until you uh, moved to the United States, uh, like how long had you been cooking in, in England before you decided uh, to come and in, in work for you, did you immediately go and work for April Bloomfield when you came to the United States? I did, yeah. So when I when I graduated, the I graduated in twenty fourteen, um, and then that in England you it's only a three year degree. All degrees are only three years. So I, I was twenty one at the time, um, and the, so I should say this about PQ, like it started off as this tiny barbecue place. Um, serving pulled pork sandwiches for, 50, you know, ten pounds or something. It now is like the chef has gone on to run his fine dining farm and hotel in the countryside. The sous chef is the head chef at Maimo, the three Michelin star restaurant in Oslo. Um, the you know a couple of other sous chefs have their own restaurants in London. Tom Parry passed through that kitchen. He has Brat. Chris Leach does. He has. Uh, Manteca in London, like there's, there were only five, six members of staff and every single one of them, I'm the last one now to have my own restaurant and every single one of them now does. And Tom, who, you know, was the owner of Big Q, he, when he started doing his countryside thing, got in touch with his old friend, April, who Tom and April have known each other for a while. And she's an investor in that project in the English countryside. Um, Mm -hmm. So she like, you know, after all the, you know, stuff at Ken Friedman in, in New York, like she spent a lot of time with Tom at the farm and stuff. And they sort of built this idyllic country space. Um, but they were friends when I was contemplating moving to the States. And so it was a, there was, well, there wasn't even really a conversation. It was like Tom, and this is sort of how it works in England. And I think used to work in the States, but maybe not so much. Like when you work for a chef for a couple of years and, this, and you say you're ready to move on, they say, okay, great. This is what you're moving on to. And you sort of don't question it because you know, they have your best interests at heart and you know, they're honest, good people. And they're going to put you in touch with honest, good people. So Tom sent me to April in New York and, you know, I spent a year and a half there at the spotted pig and the rest, you know, since then I've stayed. And so the spotted pig is an extremely high volume restaurant. When it was open, it has three, it had three floors. It was open until incredibly late. Uh, it also, I mean, I, I haven't been to pit Q, but it is a, uh, a restaurant that prides itself on having excellent food, but it is in no way fancy. I would not consider it to be a super refined, uh, upscale restaurant, right? It is uh, more of a pub-style restaurant, if that's a fair way to describe it. And um, so when you got there, was it, uh, first, was it what you expected? And also, uh, what was uh, great about that experience and what was maybe not so great about it? So the first thing to note in England, when you work and in France too, when you work in a kitchen, you work normally the whole day, which starts, uh, there's no, there aren't really prep cooks. So you start your job at eight, nine in the morning and you finish at midnight and the restaurant's only open from, you know, noon to 10. So there's all these hours on the end that you sort of, that's all your prep work and your cleaning work. So I got to New York saying like, well, fuck, the Spotted Pig's open at 11 a.m. and it closes at 2. So my shift's going to be like 6 a.m. to 3 a.m. And I was very relieved to find out that people work in shifts in the U.S. and that you only do sort of 8 to 10 hours at a time. Um, I loved the volume because the volume was what we did at at Big Q as well. It's different kind of numbers. Like Big Q was 100 covers a night with three people and the Spotted Pig was 400 covers a night with eight people, six maybe. Um, But I really 
you know, I think a lot of chefs enjoy the adrenaline of that. And April is an incredibly talented chef um, who has, you know, uh, a rare eye for making, you know, simple food delicious that, again, like, her, her idol is Fergus Henderson, the chef of St. John, and they have this thing in common where they both take very, very, very sparse ingredient list and make it more delicious than it should be given what's in it, which is something, you know, I try and emulate. And I think a lot of chefs who have left the Swatter Big and gone on to do their own thing try and emulate to varying degrees of success. Um, and, you know, that sort of, that combined with the energy of the place leads to this great sense of sort of team camaraderie um and that was you know something i enjoyed about about the pig a lot um you know the downside is that when you do 400 plates a night not everything goes out perfect and you sort of have to as a i mean i didn't have to make this decision i was a, i was a line cook and then a junior sous chef but as a you know as a chef you have to make the decision that okay we're going to prioritize volume over you know perfection and i mean i i don't say that with any sense of judgment like if i was in i i would probably do the same thing like that's what we do at dame right now we prioritize volume over perfection um but then you know you have to rely on people who are not always you if you're the chef of then nine restaurants or however many april had at the time um you have to rely on your sous chefs and you know your head chefs and stuff and they're not always it depends on the person but they're not always translating you know that standard to you know the every line cook always the same so you get you know the bigger a ship is the harder it is to keep an eye on every crewmate right and that's that was something that's you know why i maybe prefer the small you know three person line to the larger six seven person line but i'm very glad i did it and it's i wouldn't know that if i hadn't had that learning experience when I look at some of the, the places that you've worked over time, I, I'm i hearing Pit Q, which is uh, barbecue, and then you move to an April Bloomfield restaurant where she is a great lover of not only pig, but also uh, heavy uh, meat dishes. And then you end up at Beatrice Inn, which... Uh, which is a Chef Angie Mar restaurant and uh, became extremely well-known for dry-aged, very large cuts of meat. Um, before we get into the Beatrice Inn and talking also about Patricia, I just want to ask you, um, was this intentional that you worked at so many restaurants that are meat-centric or uh, did it just sort of happen that way? Honestly, it wasn't. Um, I'm, I sort of just went to restaurants that I liked eating it and uh, with the exception of you know the move to the spotted big which is because tom sent me there but then when i lived in new york i i wouldn't have stayed there for as long as i did if i didn't enjoy eating at the spotted big too i it's the best advice you give to any chef right like or any cook like work at the places you enjoy the most um mm -hmm. and that was the kind of food i like to eat the most it was you know the april's pig ear salad with the lemon cake dressing and the bit of greens is yeah it's a meat heavy dish but it's just it's phenomenal um, and PQ's meat sourcing was just impeccable. And I just like kept chasing this really, really delicious food wherever I could, could see it. I want to ask a little bit about first, um, doing events and, uh, and how that has, uh, has helped you with, with Dame and, uh, and what are some of the pieces of what you did when you were working for Eric and, uh, is it LaSalle or Leslie? Lyle. Yeah. Lyle, yeah. um, and and how that sort of informed a lot of the things that you've been able to do uh, after that. Yeah, so working for Eric and Lyle is the metric group. So they had um, Gilded Lily and the Monarch Room, which were, the Monarch Room was like crazy, ginormous restaurant, um, like cavernous restaurant on West 15th Street um, and like 10th Ave. Um so very like old New York, fancy, um, $20 cocktails before that was a thing. Um, and that was my first ever time, like not being a customer at a restaurant. So I had never worked. Um, I'd never been a server. I'd never been in a restaurant kitchen before. Um, and I was currently working at a, a school at that time. And I was just desperate to get out of uh, my situation. 
Um, as a teacher? As a, yeah, as a teacher. Um, and I just was not meant to be a teacher. I was trying it out. Um, and a friend of mine had sent me this job offer. Why don't you go work at this restaurant? And I'm very organized and like, you know, implementing systems and stuff. And that's what they were looking for. To, they didn't have anyone in their like office running their um, like records and Google Drive and fixing the printer when it, you know, breaks and or, or, ordering supplies and stuff. Um, so that was a really good way to get my feet wet in the world of restaurants and learn about the back end of everything. Um, you know, if the chef needed to find a specialty ingredient, I would help him do that. But I would also, um, you know, help them with PR and events and accounting. So I, I got exposed to a lot of aspects of running a restaurant. Um, and that's very similar to the same stuff I did at the Beatrice Inn for Angie, um, even more so on like the brand side and her, cause like her PR and image is such a big part of the Beatrice Inn. So I learned all about that. I helped uh, produce her cookbook. Um, and again, that all just solidified like my, I want to own a restaurant. I want to do all these little aspects. Um, and well, when you say that you wanted to own a restaurant and you, you saw all those little aspects, what about it? What about all those little tasks was appealing that made you think that I want to be doing this um, every day? I, similar to what Ed fell in love with in the kitchen, I loved on the other side. I didn't, I never wanted to be a server, but I liked the world of being in a restaurant and, um, you know, I loved food. I loved food photography. Like I wanted to travel through eating, like all of that I loved. And I also, when I was little, I wanted to own a shop. I worked in a like gift shop all through middle school and high school. Um, so just like creating a space and an experience for someone, I really enjoyed that. Um, paired with my like organization skills and um, I don't know why I picked restaurants, but it all just, it seemed like everything I loved came together in a restaurant. Partnership is so hard. And one of the craziest aspects of such a crazy business is you have to choose whether or not you're going to do it alone or whether or not you're going to find someone or people to go on this journey with you. And uh, there's tons of books out there and, and tons of interviews of partners and trying to find this like secret sauce was there uh are there moments when you guys feel like you're totally on totally different pages or do you feel like for the most part you're aligned when you are thinking about the concept and big decisions and vision and things like that um we're like almost a year and a half into this partnership and I've never once regretted it um, or had like, oh shit, maybe we should not be partners. Uh, I've never had those thoughts. Um, it helps when you can try run it for a few years beforehand too. You know, I, I don't know what the data is on this, but like, you're right. A lot of these partnerships are shotgun together um, between like, oh, I'm, I'm the owner with the money. I know this chef, he's pretty good, and he knows the GM, and he's pretty good, and let's all get together and open a restaurant. I'm like, all right, but you're now spending a million dollars on a people you've known for at most a couple years. Like, that's, that's very brave. And on the other hand, you have like, all right, this person's a chef, and they raise the money, but they're going to then <laughs> go off and hire like, you know, 75 different people to do different parts of their, their job for them. And none of them end up doing it the way the chef wants it. And you get a very like fractured, just non, non warm restaurant, like a very unenjoyable experience to eat in and to work in too. Cause everyone's always yelling at each other cause they didn't do what the big chef overlord wanted. Um, I think having a small partnership of people who know each other very well, which if I'm right, you have too. Um, that really helps cause you know, you're, if you weren't on the same page about so much stuff, you wouldn't have made it this far in your relationship. <laughs> like there are 
you know, if you have lifelong friends or family who you're very, very close with, like those are the people you should open restaurants with because, you know, it's you got to tolerate being with them every day <laughs> forever. So that's the most important thing. Beyond the just finding, you know, a good partnership and people that you can actually be aligned with and and agree to spend the next several years of your life together. For someone that's listening to this show, that's thinking about, you know, they've had some time to gather their thoughts during COVID and they're thinking of going out on their own and maybe opening up their own concept. Uh, I would love to hear both of you answer this question. Uh, what type of advice could you give to someone who's had an idea percolating and thinks, uh, okay, maybe 2021 is is my time to take this out to market and start fundraising and start really trying to uh, find a location and, and get my idea uh, into the brick and mortar stage. What would you tell that person right now? I, got, I mean, two things that I would say, which are sort of tied together. It's like one, if you've ever even had a, you know, if you've ever had a doubt in your ability or a doubt in your like, capacity to do this or whether it's going to work like really really evaluate whether you want to i'm not saying don't just think really hard because everything that can be thrown at you will and if it's like if there's anything that could happen to you that would make you not want to open a restaurant then seriously consider not doing it because there are as you said earlier there are a lot of other jobs in restaurants normally that you could work in instead and the other point which is linked to this is just think hard about how much money it costs and how much money you really need to raise. Cause it's all, I mean, I, I don't know about the average chef or the average line cook, but I have next to no savings. And I think most chefs have most cook. I mean, I've been an executive chef or head chef of the restaurant for two years of both two star New York times ones, one of which was my own review. And I had, you know, basically, basically living paycheck to paycheck. Um, and I think that's the case for a lot of people, unless you're very financially responsible as a cook, you have very little money. So if you're a cook and you have a great idea and you really believe in yourself, just getting the liquor license costs $15,000, putting the deposit down costs fifty dollars to $100,000, getting your operating agreement set up. Like before you even have started any of the process, you need a piece of paper that, you know, forms your company and your partnership that costs $3,000. Like if you have $3,000 to spend on that and there's there's just so much money you need to raise to make this happen like even if it's a tiny little restaurant um so just re i mean think really really hard about whether you want to do that and it it does mean forgoing a lot of things to raise the money to do this it's there's no doubt in my mind that it's the best job in the world running a restaurant it's it's amazing but you you know a lot of people would disagree with that a lot of people would say it sucks um, so just, you know, really, really think about whether you want to do that. And if you do, if you like answer yes and say like, oh, fuck, it, I don't care what he's saying. Like, I've got to do it. Then there's nothing I or anyone else can say that'll be meaningful advice because you're going to figure out a way to do it. If it really means that much to you, then, you know, like we had received advice from 50 to 100 people on how to do this. Some of them, James Beard award winning chefs from restaurateurs, um, who honestly gave the worst advice. And some of them from like, just friends who had had businesses in entirely different fields. And is it useful in the aggregate? Like maybe, but there's the Malcolm Gladwell blink thing, right? Just like go with what you know to be right because you've lived it and experienced it and figure out a way to make it work. But if you can be dissuaded, then be dissuaded. And Patricia? Um, I think the value of having a partner, we've already touched on this, but I think both of us would say that we wouldn't have gotten this far alone. Um, we had one friend of ours coming to do a pop-up a few months ago, and then we went um, on opening day of her spot, I'll just say Mel Bakery. Um, Nora Allen's one of our good friends. Um, and opening day of her bakery, she forgot the... Um, straws she was selling iced coffee but didn't have any straws so she you know would, we ordered a coffee and she's like okay here's your coffee but I don't have any straws to go with it um and so we ran and got her some straws from a coffee shop down the street no problem but just not having a sounding wall or someone to go over your checklist with and be like am I forgetting anything um that is infinitely important I think. 
we are getting closer and closer to 2021, which feels like this sort of mental turning the corner, but still we have so much uncertainty in, in New York City about what's going to happen over the next couple months. And uh, you have a a restaurant project that is is going to happen. So what is the next version of Dame? Will it be called Dame? And what is the timeline for that project? And uh, everything that we've talked about over this entire conversation, uh, has it informed the new version in any ways that you can concretely talk about uh, that are going to change it from what the original version was when you when you took it out to investors before COVID? If anything, it's solidified our belief in some of our like core principles. You sort of write those down for those who haven't read a business plan before. You write those down and like study a business plan, like what your core guiding principles are for your business. And and one was to be small and flexible. Um, and I think that's a we've that has work really really well for us and, and you've mentioned it and i think we have too like we managed to do well this summer because we were small and could adapt and change we're on our third concept in the last six months six months at the moment it's just ridiculous to say out loud but but it's true um and bigger restaurant groups don't have that luxury uh we've seen people try and like f- try and fail at you know moving their concept to the street or doing to go and it hasn't worked out so well so that I think we're gonna. That part of Dame will always be a you know guiding light for who we are. Um, the what we talked about earlier with the style of cuisine, it's gonna revert a little back towards the higher end stuff, but it'll have seafood as its focus now instead of meat, which is exciting for me because it'll be the first time I've you know dedicated a menu entirely to to fish, and there will be very little if, if any meat. Um, the timeline for the opening is hopefully hopefully. May. I mean, I guess you should say February so that when it's May, it's not so embarrassing. <laughs> uh, we, I mean, we're lucky. Like we, we're very, very lucky. Actually, we opened a pop-up at a space next to the world's number one bar. And because they were so busy, we got a lot of their customers and we had our own following and then it, it took off. And then we found a space very, very close and we knew the community already. And people know that Dame is on McDougal street and, you know, it's still going to be on McDougal Street and we may not have the same setbacks that a lot of restaurant openings do. Like you've, I mean, sort of throughout this interview, we've spoken about how, how like tough it can be in various ways. Um, and a lot of that we've managed to skip because we did the pop-up. Like this was our learning period. This, this six months here that normally that we spent, you know, serving fish and chips from the back of a you know, with an electric fryer on, plugged on top of a stove. Um, that's what most people use as their, like, build-out, getting to know their partner, figuring out whether their concept works kind of thing. We know the vision chip works and people like it. We know we're, you know, very, very good partners. We have very lucky to have a dedicated staff who are both close friends and serious, talented cooks. Um, we know our neighbors and our regulars. There's a lot of the trial and error that goes into a restaurant opening that we've managed to skip over. Um, I don't know if we said this earlier, maybe not, but to your advice, your question about advice for people who want to open a restaurant, do a pop-up first, like figure out whether it works. If you're going to raise, I don't, I don't really think you can open a restaurant for less than like 150 or $200,000 in New York, at least not in Manhattan or Brooklyn. Um, if you're going to spend that much money, spend 10000 or 5000 or 2000 of it on a three-month pop-up as your dummy run. Um, we're lucky that we've been able to do that. And now, you know, we've been approved for our liquor license and we're very, very close to signing the lease. And if all goes to plan, we're going to put some new – we're going to stick to the attitude that we had with this name. Put some new tables and chairs in, make it look very pretty. Um cook delicious food, have very warm service and very tasty wines at an affordable price point and hopefully be in for the long haul. But that being said, there'll be pandemic number two next year in 2021. Like, <laughs> I don't know why. I remember at the end of 2019, everyone thought 2020 was going to be so great. Like, who knows? A wonderful blend of optimism and doom to close out the interview. <laughs> uh, well, I am... Uh, 
hoping and wishing that uh, February, May, uh, things are looking up and that you can uh, throw open the doors and welcome everyone into your own brick and mortar location. Uh, Patricia and Ed, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me about what the last year and last couple years of your lives in New York and culinary careers have been like. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Where can folks go to learn more about Dame? Is there a website and an Instagram that you can shout out so that people can follow along and get all the information as you get closer to opening? Yes. Dame New York spelled out dot com is our website. And then Dame underscore NYC is our Instagram. We definitely um, keep the Instagram more up to date than the website. So go there for um, all the latest news. And is it a, are you in a full hibernation mode right now until you, until you throw open the doors to the brick and mortar? Or is there another sort of pop-up type no, of deal we are, planned? We are popping up within our own pop-up and someone else's pop-up at 85 McDougal Street doing a, a deli and bottle shop for the winter because indoor dining, as P said, is not safe, even though it's still technically legal. And I'm sure you've seen outdoor dining structures in New York, and that's just indoor dining on the street. That's not outdoor Correct, dining. yeah. Um, so we're not going to do either of those, but one thing, people, people still need to eat. So we have a bunch of Natura groceries here. Um, I'm looking at it right now. Natura groceries and um, pantry stuff, a whole selection of wine, some natural, some you know, aged stuff that we've picked up at auction. We're going to have Nora from Mel bake bread for us. Our friend and investor Mari is making like tea towels and cute design things. The guys at Fourth Ave and Faccio Bruto, the spirits companies, uh, selling like holiday packets of their spirits. I'm making a bunch of prepared seafood stuff. So I always wish that the tinned seafood conservers you got at delis were better um, or at like specialty stores. Um, and so I'm making them myself and you can come pick up like dame's tinned anchovies or dame's you know pickled mussels that kind of thing um and we're still doing the fish and chips to go on friday and saturdays so four days a week we'll do the bottle shop on the, on the deli and then we'll be building out next door in the rest of the time the fish and chips is only going to be friday and saturday all right so you're taking it very very easy over the next couple months it sounds like and not really uh <laughs> not really not really putting too much not really putting too much on your plate at all uh well again thank you so much for speaking with me and everyone go find patricia and ed at uh all these fun exciting pop-up and brick and mortar concepts that they've got going on on mcdougall street thanks for listening to this episode of the line You can find this episode and over 100 more interviews with chefs, owners, and food entrepreneurs on heritageradionetwork.org, Apple Podcasts, or on Spotify. Please wear a mask and stay safe. The Line is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners just like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.